how do you feel when someone tells you not to do something, then you witness them doing the very same thing that they told you not to do? Does that frustrate you? Does that make you a little angry, a little irritated? Like, come on, you just told me not to do this thing, and now you're doing the same thing. I think that bothers all of us. And some of us, we'd like to confront them and say, you hypocrite, what you're doing is wrong, and it's not okay. In this specific text, Jesus is going to do just that. He's going to call out the scribes and the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, but he's going to go one step further. He's not just going to address the external hypocrisy. He's going to get to the root of the problem, which is in their hearts. That's why I've entitled this message, Hypocrisy and the Heart. Hypocrisy and the Heart. We'll be in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Again, warning, this is not like a feel-good message. Okay, This is Jesus rebuking scribes and Pharisees. Then he's going to take this same concept and address the multitudes and the disciples to warn them, in a sense, uh, to not fall into the same ways of the scribes and Pharisees. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus. Now this is interesting because if you look back at Matthew chapter 14 and verse 34, after Jesus fed the 5,000 and crossed over the Sea of Galilee, it says that he's in Gennesaret. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. Back to 15 verse 1, these scribes and Pharisees are from where? They're from Jerusalem. Gennesaret's about 70 miles away. So these scribes and these Pharisees are literally going out of their way to what? To question Jesus, to bring accusation against them. You ever go out of your way to criticize someone, to judge someone? Do you make that the, your personal mission? See, when we first come to the Lord, there's so much grace and we're so consumed and we forgive all our friends and family members for everything that they've done to us. And then as we continue in our pursuit of the Lord, as he continues to perfect us, something is produced in us. Now, something's called pride. And sometimes we can have this tendency to be a little self-righteous where we try to hold other people to our standard of living. And anybody who doesn't live up to our standard of living, we point out the flaws. Why? So we can feel better about our own flaws. That's what the scribes and Pharisees are doing here. Look, they're going to travel all the way from Jerusalem to Gennesaret to bring accusation against Jesus and his disciples. They question him. Look at verse 2. Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So, the scribes and Pharisees 
are questioning the disciples, questioning Jesus specifically about the disciples as to why they don't follow their traditions, specifically as it pertains to washing hands before they eat. Now, they had these ceremonial washings that they needed to perform to be able to do certain acts. Now, some of these ceremonial washings and cleansings were in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, a lot of them are there in Leviticus, but what the scribes and Pharisees did was they took some of those things that God said and they added to it. And they said that you had to do all these extra things. You had to perform all these these extra ceremonial cleansing. So this isn't a rebuke about the disciples not following the Levitical laws. This is a rebuke and a question for the disciples about why they're not following the scribes and Pharisees man-made traditions and religion. Now they're so concerned about their man-made traditions, but Jesus, we're going to see here in this text that he breaks tradition which brings me to the first of five points jesus breaks tradition jesus breaks tradition are you the type of person that gets so caught up with how things were that you miss out on what god's doing now So often there's people in this church even that have been around for so long and there's so many things that we used to do here and I'll get questions all the time. Hey, we used to do this and we used to do that. It's like, why did we used to do that? Did we do that just because we always did that? Or did we do that because Jesus says to do it? Because Jesus here in this text, he's going to rebuke the scribes and Pharisees for doing things just because they always did them. And they're getting away from the word of God because they're stuck and narrow minded and set on following their man made traditions. See, just because things have always been a certain way doesn't mean it's God's way. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach these scribes. And Pharisees, he's constantly battling against tradition and man-made religion. Some people will, Christianity, oh, that's your religion, that's great. No, it's not my religion. My God battled against religion. My God believes in relationship, and that's what he teaches us. That's the message that he's trying to get across to the scribes and Pharisees. He's rebuking them because they've gone astray. They started following religiosity and got away from a sincere relationship with God. Jesus isn't concerned about religion. He's specifically not concerned about man-made tradition. He's concerned with sincere relationships with God. And the specific thing that they point out in this text, that second part of verse 2, it says, For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Do you think the scribes and Pharisees are really concerned about the disciples' hygiene? Do you think the scribes and Pharisees could care less whether or not the disciples would get sick from eating with dirty hands if there was bacteria or some type of virus on their hands? They don't care about the disciples. This rebuke isn't rooted in love. They couldn't care less about the disciples. They're concerned and they're upset because the disciples aren't following their tradition. The disciples, they're not acting in the way that the Pharisees think that they should act. See, 
the Pharisees, they're concerned about the washing of the hand. And, and, and this is the tendency with the Pharisees. They're concerned with the external. They're concerned with how things appear. But Jesus is going to teach them that they need to be concerned not with the hands, not with the external, but with the heart. Because the problem here is with the condition of their hearts. Look at verse 3. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? I love this method of Jesus. They ask him a question, and what does he do? He answers their question with the question. They ask, Why do your disciples not follow our traditions? And Jesus says, um, Why don't you follow the word of God? And basically what Jesus is doing here, I want to focus on the question thing. First, Jesus asks questions not to frustrate them. It's not that he's trying to make them mad. He's trying to lead them to a deeper place of understanding. See, they ask this question that's very surface level. It deals with tradition and the disciples not following the tradition. But Jesus knows that the problem isn't about the disciples, nor is it about the tradition. The issue is the heart. So he's going to ask this pointed question to lead them to the heart behind their own question. This is the problem that really needs to be addressed. Not the disciples, not following the tradition, but you in your tradition have gotten away from the heart of God. And that's what Jesus is getting across to them there. The Pharisees are questioning, hey, why aren't the disciples following our tradition? Jesus, again, he's like, why aren't you guys following the word of God? You've gotten so far away from the word of God. And look what he does in that next verse. He leads them to the word of God in verse four. He says, for God commanded, saying, honor your father and your mother, And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might receive from me as a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. So look what Jesus does here. He asks them a question, then he leads them to the word of God. What is he saying? Regardless of what your tradition says, this is what the word of God says, which brings me to the second point. The word trumps tradition. The word trumps tradition. That Trump has nothing to do with Donald Trump, okay? (laughs) I just thought about that now. I think that's why people asked last time. Jesus wants us to follow the word of God over our traditions. And look at this scripture that he points to. He corrects them about a specific thing that they were doing. He gives them the word of, word of God. Look at verse four, honor your father and your mother. It's one verse, another verse. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. That's what the word says. But you say what your tradition says, whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift to God. Then he need not honor his mother or father. So this is one example Jesus uses about how the scribes and Pharisees would get around the word of God. See, the word of God clearly says, honor your father and your mother. Now, 
There's a lot to that. But what Jesus is getting at is if your mother or your father, if your family was in need, a way of honoring them was providing for them, taking care of them when they're in need. If they're hungry, if they're starving, if they had a bad harvest and they need some help, honoring them looks like providing for them. But what the scribes and Pharisees did, they made up a law that, hey, we're super religious, right? We're scribes and Pharisees. So everything that we own is a gift to God. It belongs to God. So no, mom and dad, I can't help you out because all my possessions, they're a gift to God. And I'm going to give them to God. They belong to God. And whether they gave them to God or not, usually they didn't. But what Jesus is pointing out is God never said that. God never said, hey, everything that you have is to be given to me, to be invested into my temple at the cost of your family not being provided for. That's not what God was saying when he said, honor your father and your mother. The scribes and the Pharisees, they got away from, they got around following the word of God. And this was just one example. Picking it up in Matthew chapter 15 that last part of verse 6 so this is what they did he concludes with that specific section and says thus you have made the commandment of god of no effect by your tradition basically the way that they were living was the traditions that we made they trump the word of god and they made specific traditions man-made traditions again to get around what god had said and Jesus saying, that's, that's not okay. You've made the commandment of God of no effect. You've best, basically canceled it out by your tradition. They were putting their faith in their man-made traditions and not in the word of God. Sometimes we do this too. Sometimes we put our faith in the traditions that our culture has formed and we get away from the word of God and we don't even realize it. Here's one example. The people that come to church on Sundays are Christians. Does everyone that comes to church on Sunday a Christian? Does the Bible say that coming to church on Sunday makes you a Christian? Now this is heavy, but it's true. See, in our culture, there's the belief, okay, we're a Christian nation and the Christians are the ones that they go to church. But what are they trusting? And there's nowhere in the Bible that it says that the Christians are the ones that just go to church on Sunday. No. What does the Bible say? How are we saved? The Bible says a few different things, but sums up pretty well in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, I'll get back to that, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now, so many people in our culture can look at that verse and say, yeah, just come up, say a sinner's prayer, and you're saved. You could be saved, but you might not be. Because what is that prayer? You're confessing the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? You're saying, I'm making him from this point forward, Lord of my life. That means that I'm no longer Lord of my life. That means Jesus is Lord of my life. I believe that he died on a cross for my sins. He 
paid a penalty that I couldn't pay. And now because of that grace, I have salvation. But if I accept that gift of salvation in accepting that gift, I'm accepting his lordship. So what Christianity is, it's not just people that come to church on Sundays. It's really a faith-based relationship with Jesus that's expressed through obedience. Now, I'm not saying that if you disobey the Lord, you're going to hell. We all disobey the Lord at certain times. But I am saying that if your obedience to Jesus solely consists of you coming to church on Sunday, then biblically you really need to reevaluate what your relationship with Jesus looks like. I know this is heavy, but it's true. And my heart is not to get people to question their salvation. My heart, just like Jesus, is to let people know, hey, if you're putting your faith in tradition, then you're, you're, you're risking a lot. Jesus is trying to do that. Scribes and Pharisees, you better believe they thought they were going to heaven. They thought they were sealed. They thought they were good. They dedicated their whole lives to living for God. So they thought. But they put so much faith and confidence in the traditions that they developed. They got away from the word of God. My heart, like Jesus, is to bring it back to the word of God. It doesn't matter what our culture says. It doesn't matter what tradition says. It matters what the word of God says. That's not going to lead us astray. Look what he says says to him. Verse 7. Hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying he calls them hypocrites. Then he points them back to the word to reveal to them hypocrisy. This word from Isaiah, this was concerning you. That's what he's saying to them. Look at verse eight. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of Men, what he's telling them, you are this scripture from Isaiah. You like to talk about me. You like to teach about me, but your hearts are far from me. Which brings me to the third point. Jesus wants our hearts more than our lips. Jesus wants our hearts more than our lips. It's really easy to talk about God. It's really easy to even recite scripture and know the word of God and communicate the word of God. But Jesus, he's not nearly as concerned about your ability to do that than he is about your heart being close to him. He rebukes the scribes and Pharisees and all of Matthew chapter 23 will reference it a couple times. But one of the things that he calls them is whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're dead inside. And this wasn't just Jesus like, oh, you whitewashed tomb. Yeah, 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 I'm condemning you. No, this was a Jesus that was saying, you guys look good on the outside, but you're dead inside. And the only thing that can bring your dead bones back to life is me. So unless you bring me into that rotting tomb, you have no life. You have no eternal life. It's about me getting into your hearts because without Jesus in our hearts, we're, we're dead. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, you once were dead in your trespasses and sins, but he made us alive together in with Christ Jesus. We once were those dead 
people in those tombs. But Jesus came in. He revived our hearts literally and brought us back to life. He says, in vain, they worship me. They aren't worshiping in sincerity. They aren't worshiping in spirit and in truth. They're worshiping as an external religious act. They're worshiping because scribes and Pharisees, that's what they were supposed to do. But it was all external. It was all religious. They didn't truly have a heart for the Lord. It was all about appearing good. It says, in vain you worship me, teaching as, look at that last part of verse 9, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Let me get something across that's pretty important. In this text and throughout the Gospels, Jesus isn't saying that all tradition is bad. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that all tradition is bad. But what he is saying is that the word of God needs to be elevated above our traditions. And if our traditions conflict with the word of God, then we need to change something or we need to cut something out. And then he tells them, you're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're literally focused on communicating their man-made traditions to other people. But what's that doing? They're spreading man-made tradition and they're spreading a faith in man-made tradition so that these people that are following them think they're following them to a relationship with God or salvation in God. But what they're really doing is leading people to hell. And Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, this whole chapter, we'll get there eventually, he rebukes the scribes and Pharisees. In verse 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. Now, a proselyte uh, is a convert in this text, obviously, a Jewish convert. So basically what he's saying is you're going on missions, mission trips. You're traveling the world to convert people to Judaism. But then look what he says. And when he is one, when he is converted, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. So what he's saying, what you're teaching people, yes, they're following it, but you're leading them to hell. Jesus is getting this message across to the scribes and Pharisees, not out of hate, but out of love. Hey, I'm concerned about you and I'm concerned about all the people that are following you. You're literally raising up children to go to hell. You're making sons and daughters of Satan when I'm the son of God. And I want you to teach people about me so that people can have salvation, that they too can become sons and daughters of God, that they might have eternal life. Look what he says in verse 10. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear and understand. Okay. So he rebukes the scribes and Pharisees, and now he calls the multitude. Now this multitude is likely a mix of all kinds of people, but this multitude, many of them were probably led astray by different teachings of scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders and teachers of the day. They were typically the ones that taught at the synagogues. So some of the people in these multitudes are probably the very people that Jesus is talking about. Hey, you've led these people astray. You're making them sons and daughters 
of hell. But look what he says. He says to them, hear and understand. Hearing is one thing, but understanding is another. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But then again, we see in Matthew chapter 13, we discussed several weeks ago that it's so important to Jesus that we don't just hear the word, but that we understand it. Remember when he's talking about the parable of the sower, he says, fruit comes from understanding. Yes, faith comes from hearing, but fruit comes from understanding. What does that mean? Well, if I just hear something and I don't understand it, I can't apply it. I can hear the word of God all day long. My faith might increase, but for me to be able to apply the word of God and do something with it, I have to understand it. So he says, don't just hear what I'm saying. Understand what I'm speaking to you. This is extremely important. Look at verse 11. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. It's not about what we eat, but what we say that defiles us. Now, Jesus, he's opening the concept here a little bit. He's speaking not just of the dirt that are on the disciples' hands. Later, we'll see in Acts chapter 10, Jesus uses a vision for Peter to understand that um, the gospel was to be presented to the Gentiles. And with this vision, he gives them a picture of unclean animals. And Peter says, he says, eat. God says, eat. Peter says, no, I can't eat. I've never eaten anything that's unclean. That was Peter's tradition. That's what he had been taught. And yes, true. It's in the Levitical law as well. Jesus breaks that. He goes against that. He says, no, no, what I call clean is clean. So you don't argue with me about what's clean and what's not clean. It's not about what comes into the mouth that defiles a man. It's about what comes out of the mouth. Picking it up in verse 12. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you not know? (laughs) Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Okay, come on, guys. At this point, really, you're asking Jesus if he doesn't know something. Okay, the last encounter that they just had with him, he was doing what? Walking on the water, right? And they thought he was a ghost. And then they realized, oh my gosh, it's Jesus. He said, be of good cheer. And they're like, oh, oh, it's the Lord. Uh, They worshiped him. Truly, you are the son of God. But this keeps happening. They realize he's the son of God. They realize he knows all things. They realize he's powerful and sovereign over all things. And then they question his abilities again. (laughs) I'll read it again. Verse 12. Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Of course, Jesus knew that the Pharisees were offended. He was trying to offend them. He was trying to get under their skin to stir something up in them to make them realize that they needed to change. And also as well, of course, the Pharisees were offended. Why were the Pharisees offended? Because Jesus was telling them something that they didn't know. See, Pharisees think they know everything. Brings me to the fourth point. Know-it-alls don't really know at all. Know-it-alls don't really know at all. A former Pharisee speaks into this, and I love what he says. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 
1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, remember, again, this is a former Pharisee speaking, verse 1. Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. What's Paul saying? Specifically, verse 2. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. You think you know anything? Come on. I think I know something. But in all sincerity, this is extremely convicting. The heart that Paul's trying to get across here is not that you don't know anything. Like, I know my name. I know who I am. You know who you are. You know who hopefully your children's names are. You know some things, right? What he's getting at is the knowledge of God should not lead us to a place of pride, but a place of humility. The more we know about God should bring us to a place that we realize we don't really know much at all. What do I mean? As I seek and I pursue God in his word, yes, there's knowledge that comes from it, but that knowledge is supposed to teach me about what I don't know. Wow, God, you are so big. You are so majestic. You are so amazing. I know less than I thought I did about you. That's the heart that he's trying to get across. This knowledge of God should produce a humility in us. He goes further in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, chapter where he's talking about love. And he says, for now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. What's Paul, the Pharisee, the know-it-all saying? Hey, As I come to know the love of God and understand him, yes, I realize that now I just know in part. I only know a little bit. Eventually, I'll know God just as I also am known. I'll completely understand him as much as I'm able to. But as I seek the knowledge and the love of Jesus Christ, I realize, what do I really know? It's very small compared to the knowledge of God, compared to the knowledge that he has out there. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're confident in what they know. So when Jesus rebukes them, they're offended because they think what he has to say is contrary to the knowledge that they're so confident in. And Jesus, he's not just rebuking them in what they know or what they don't know. This rebuke is connected to the reality that he's calling them to change. He's calling them to be humble. He's calling them to have a sincere relationship with God. You better be careful if you tell a Pharisee to change. Pharisees don't like to change. They're good where they're at. Why? Because they're confident in who they've become in their man-made tradition already. They're not humble enough to realize that God always has something new. God wants to stretch them. God wants to push them. God wants to continue to grow them. They're good where they're at. I'm good. I pray that I never get to that place because the disciples, they're always hungry for more. Even in this text, they ask Jesus for more understanding. They want to know more. They realize in humility, man, Jesus, compared to you, I got a long way to go. 
And I want to go that way. And I want to go that way with you. I know I can't do it by myself. The scribes and the Pharisees are so confident in what they can attain by themselves. It's prideful and it's ultimately ignorant and it's robbing them from this encounter with God. He's standing right in front of them, revealing things to them and they won't receive it. They're offended because of it. Look what happens in verse 13. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father has not planted will be uprooted. The work that the scribes and Pharisees, they're not of God. Why? Because their root isn't in sincere relationship with God. Their root isn't in the love of God. They're rooted in themselves. They're rooted in pride and arrogance and what they think they know. Jesus is saying they're going to be uprooted by God because they have really no part in God or with God. Verse 14, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. He says to the disciples, let the scribes and Pharisees alone. Why is he saying that? Because it's Jesus's place to rebuke the scribes and Pharisees. We can desire to get into a theological debate with a Pharisee, if you will, but it's really not going to do much good. Now you're battling pride with pride. Jesus says, let them alone. I'll deal with them. I'll be the one that uproots them. I'll deal with their pride and arrogance. You don't need to. You just follow me. And he calls them blind leaders leading the blind. What are the implications there? He's referring to spiritual blindness. Now, how is someone who is spiritually blind going to be able to lead others to seeing God? Now, you might say, well, none of us have seen God. It says in the Bible, no one's seen God at any time. Follow me here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. No, we may not be able to see God face to face in this body, in this realm, but we can see God working. We can see what God's doing. We can see God moving. And he says, again, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, it's important to remember the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, the first beatitude is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. So that whole, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, it starts with humility. Poor in spirit, what's the implication there that my spirit, it's poor, it's in need. Yes, your spirit is in need. It's in need of what? It's in need of a savior. It's in need of a relationship with Jesus. Later he says, in that same text, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's not a purity that is man-made. It's not a pursuit of purity by my own strength, by my own means. It's a recognition that I'm impure. And it's a recognition that God is the one that makes me pure. Now, in humility, I realize I'm impure without God. God comes into my life. He shows up in my life. He starts making me pure. He starts purifying me. And in that process of purification, I'm able to see God more clearly because there's our responsibility in it and God's responsibility 
in it. He's saying you're blind because you're spiritually blind. You can't see God because you're confident in your own means to be purified. Ceremonial cleansings. That doesn't purify you. You can't be pure without a relationship with God. So that's what he's trying to get across to them. Once you have that relationship with God, you're made pure. Now you can see God more clearly. And as you walk with him in this um, process of purification, you'll see him more and more clearly. And now that I see God, I can lead people to God. Matthew chapter 15, verse 15. Then Peter answered and said to him, explain this parable to us. This is funny. Okay, so we have to remember back in Matthew chapter 13 that when the disciples came to Jesus to explain specific parables to him, he did what? He explained it to him, right? He gave them understanding. He spoke in these pretty difficult parables to understand. We dove into that for several weeks. They sought him for understanding. He gave them understanding. Then Jesus is, sorry, Peter, he's probably thinking back to that. And he says, explain this parable to us. But Jesus isn't really speaking in a parable. The only part of this text that might be a parable is the blind leading the blind. That might be the only portion. So Peter's like, give me understanding of this deep knowledge. Jesus is speaking very plainly here. It's very easy to understand what Jesus is trying to get across to it. In fact, he makes that clear to us in verse 16. So Jesus said, are you still without understanding? Peter, really? Like I'm not talking in these deep, in-depth parables. Like this is just plain knowledge, common sense. Are you still without understanding? I'm not trying to make this too difficult for you. Remember, I said hear and understand. This is, I'm trying to give you understanding right now. Verse 17. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. The things that proceed out of the mouth He's talked about this before. We won't go deep into it because we did kind of a whole sermon on it. The things that come into, sorry, that come out of the mouth reveal what's in the heart. It exposes what's in our hearts. Our words actually reveal what's in our hearts. And look what he says in verse 19. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. So Jesus, again, he's getting to the heart issues. All the external things, all the external sins, they're rooted somewhere. And he gives us further clarity um, of this in the Sermon on the Mount. And everything really that he talks about, when he's talking about adultery, the act of adultery, what does he say? It starts somewhere. The sins that we commit on the outside, it's not just like one day I decided to murder somebody and I did. It's not like one day you decide to commit adultery and you did. No, Jesus makes it clear that it starts somewhere and it starts with the heart. See, adultery, the root of that is lust. You start lusting and you keep giving into that and you don't establish self-control. Eventually, you're going to be given over to that thing. Murder doesn't start with just one day I decided to kill someone. It's there's anger there and there's bitterness and there's resentment and it builds up. And when it's not addressed, when it's not uprooted, then it turns into an action. 
And that's what Jesus is getting across. The Pharisees and the scribes are so focused on the external thing. But when we just address the symptom of sin, we're not really doing it any good. Um, so say that I was sick and I had a running nose and I kept blowing my nose and blowing my nose and blowing my nose. What would it do? It would get rid of the snot for a little bit until what? It started coming back again. It's not going to solve the problem. I'm just addressing the symptom. I got to get to the heart of the issue. Maybe it's a virus. Maybe it's a bacteria in me and I have to take the proper medicine to get to that thing inside me. So the nose doesn't, so the nose will stop running. If I just address the symptom, I'm not doing it any good. That's what he's getting at with the scribes and the Pharisees. You keep addressing the external thing. You keep addressing these things on the outside, but you really need to get to the things on the inside. And he takes it further and connects it to sin. When we sin, when we do certain things, yeah, you could rebuke your son or your daughter or your wife or your husband or whoever, or your friends, your family for the external act. But if you don't get to the root, if you don't get to the heart issue, if you don't get to the depth of the reason why they're doing those things, then you're just blowing their nose. It's not really going to change them. You're just telling them, don't do this thing around me. But if you don't get to the heart of it, then you can expect that sin to remain the same. Maybe not around you, maybe in the dark, maybe behind closed doors. Jesus, he's trying to get to the root. He's trying to go deep. The problems in the heart. If I don't address that problem in the heart, the symptoms are going to remain the same. Verse 20, these are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. Okay. Let's be real clear here, all you non-hand washers. Jesus isn't saying (laughs) that Jesus isn't saying you shouldn't be uh, unhygienic. He's not saying that it's okay to, you know, it's fine to like go to the bathroom and eat with a group of people or like do these things. You don't have to wash your hands. Jesus isn't saying that um, that hygiene is a bad thing. Okay. Hygiene is a good thing. Okay. Any of you single guys right there? Out there, come on. Hygiene is a good thing, I promise you. If you don't learn that, you may be single for the rest of your lives. But in all sincerity, Jesus, he's not saying that washing hands is a bad thing. He's trying to come against the traditions. He's trying to get to the heart. Hey, these things you've made up concerning your religious man-made laws, they're not the thing that really matters. The problem, again, it's in the heart. We can look at the outside and we can clean it up and we can make it look nice and pretty. We can take showers. We can come to church. We can externally worship the Lord. But it really comes down to the heart. And the reality of it is with each and every one of us, me included, that there's issues in our hearts. There's things that need to change There's things that are dirty. There's things that are filthy. There's things that Jesus isn't okay with. And there's things that he wants to come in and and cleanse. Which brings me to the fifth point. This will be quick. Our hearts need constant cleansing. Our hearts need constant cleansing. 
as we draw near and near to the Lord, we see how perfect he is and how imperfect we are. Our relationship with the Lord, the closer it gets, should reveal to us the reality of our sinfulness and the things that we do, maybe not even externally, but the things that are in our hearts, the things that we think about. He's concerned about those things as well. And maybe it's not our whole hearts are wicked and deceitful. Yes, the Bible says our hearts are wicked and deceitful, but maybe it's not that our whole hearts are, 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 are filthy and dirty. Maybe there's just a part of it that Jesus needs to cleanse. And I love how he discusses this in some ways indirectly in John chapter 13. As he's washing the disciples' feet, he has this conversation with Peter. Let's read a few of these verses real quick. This is where we'll close. Matthew chapter 13, verse 7 says, Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. What's Jesus getting across there? Hey, I've called you clean. My sons, my daughters, those who have a faith-based relationship with me that really have made me Lord of their life, I've cleansed you. We're cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. But there's certain parts of us that are still dirty that need to be cleansed. Jesus is saying, Peter, I don't need to clean your whole body. You're clean, Okay? I just need to clean your feet. And again, there's areas in each of our life that Jesus looks at and says, hey, your feet are a little dirty. Your heart's a little dirty. I need to clean that up. Will you let me? Can I come and clean that up? Because if you don't let me, as he told Peter, you have no part in me. Don't be okay with that little bit of dirt. Don't be okay with that little bit of filth. As small as it is, Jesus, he wants our whole hearts. He even wants the filthy part. Why? So he can take that filthy part and he can clean it. He doesn't want a portion. He wants the whole thing. He's the ruler and Lord of our hearts. That's what we're saying when we say, I'm a Christian or I follow Jesus. So even the dirty part, he wants that too. He wants to get in there and get his... Jesus is not afraid to get his hands dirty. He proved that throughout his ministry. He is not afraid to get his hands dirty. As dirty as that part of your heart is, I promise you Jesus isn't afraid of it. And he'll come in and he will cleanse that certain section. But so often we need to invite him. Psalm 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search that part. Maybe you're not even aware of it, but I guarantee you, I know for a fact, every single one of us in this room, me included, there's part of our hearts that need to be cleansed, that need to be changed. And I'd ask and pray that you'd be willing to allow the Lord to come in and cleanse that part. Because as much as we don't want to let go of those things, and maybe it's pride, maybe it's envy, maybe it's lust, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's what we've mainly been talking about in this text, text, maybe it's hypocrisy. He wants all of that. He wants to change every 
bit of it, but we have to be in a place that we're willing and allowing him to come into those areas of our lives and our hearts that, frankly, we want him him to have nothing to do with. Please pray with me. Lord, this text, God, so so hard to chew and grasp. Um, but there's a reason that it's here. Lord, it's for us. It's, it's so easy to fall in line with the ways of the scribes and Pharisees as we get to know your word and uh, understand it better. There's a pride that can be produced and there's a hypocrisy that can be produced, but that wasn't your heart. And you clearly um, rebuke them for that, God. I pray that we would be people that don't just honor you with our lips, Lord, but we would honor you with our hearts and the things that you're doing in our hearts and the changes that you've made in our hearts would be expressed through our lips. Lord, we love you. We ask for grace in the areas that are still dirty and we invite you to come in and take care of those things, God, to cleanse those parts of our hearts that we haven't allowed you to get to in a, in a long time. Lord, help us in your name. Amen.